chapter 3, that's where we're going to be at in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, we, just to get everybody on the same page, we are focusing on holy patterns. And we have been talking about one specific holy pattern of winning the day. We've been talking about it for several weeks, ever since August, um, which is hard to believe because August was like two years ago or, or something like that. Um, right now, with everything that's going on, uh, as much as the world changes uh, from week to week, time kind of has no meaning. Um, just this past week, um, seven days ago, I announced, hey, we're starting a Wednesday night Bible study back up. Um, and then almost immediately into the week, started getting reports, people in the church going and getting tested for COVID, ended up having five people in the congregation get tested. Everybody was negative. That's a praise. But our county, the county to the west of us, the county to the east of us, both turned orange, and our county turned orange, and virus is rapidly accelerating. And so we're not doing Wednesday night Bible study. And that's been like every plan that we have made over the last six months. I get to tell you on Sunday and then cancel it like on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, just this past week, there were some really big news stories that came out. One came out on Monday, and I was like, whoa, that's huge. And then yesterday, Saturday, I was like, wow, that came out six days ago. That feels like months ago. It's because everything is constantly changing. And right now, in the middle of all this, with everything turned upside down more than ever before, we need patterns that focus us on what really matters, and we need patterns that are the same from day to day. Um, because I believe that these patterns will help us carry through this, these challenging times. And the one I've been emphasizing is winning the day. Winning the day is starting your day with God's Word before you go to Facebook, before you go to the news. You're starting your day with God's truth. And I believe that how you start your day will impact how you spend your day. And so I'm trying to get you to start your day on the right foot. I recently read that for a bipolar person, the very best thing that they can do is to develop strong routines. If you've ever been around a bipolar person, a bipolar person is someone who has a manic state. In other words, like, everything is awesome. This is great. Everything is great. And then the next day, everything is horrible. One day, they're getting all kinds of things done. They're signing up for new projects. They're signing up for new tasks. The next day, they can barely get out of bed. And a bipolar person, what they need is they need routines that stay the same day after day. Because their routines will keep them grounded when they're in their manic state, when they're on the top of the mountain, and their routines will keep them going when they're in their, the depressive or they're in the bottom of the valley. And I want you to, to know that we live in a bipolar culture. We live in a culture that constantly goes from the height of everything is awesome to the depths of everything is falling apart. We live in a culture that right now simultaneously believes that its advancements in science and technology and philosophy and the new morality or social justice, that it's going to bring on utopia, but at the same time also believes that the world is ending in political anarchy and racial injustice and global warming and at the hands of a virus. In this bipolar culture, we need 
holy patterns that will keep us grounded when things are great and keep us moving when things are not. And this is so needed in our world today that there are many secular voices that are recognizing the need for these patterns and habits. Just over the last couple of years, the following books have been on the New York Times bestsellers list. Atomic Habits, The Power of Habit, Habit Stacking, The Art of Good Habits, High Performance Habits. People are recognizing, I need some habits, some routines, some regular things in my life that will keep me going through all of this craziness. Just this past week, the New York Times did an article on Jewel. I mean, if you remember Jewel, she had a hit song in the 90s. She came out with her first album in 1995. You were meant for me and I was meant for you. The reason they're writing that article is because it's been 25 years since that song came out. I mean, speak of time having no meaning. The song came out when I was in junior high. That can't be 25 years ago. But instead of promoting the article with Jewel, this folk musician who gained popularity in the mid-90s, instead of promoting the article as, it's been 25 years since Jewel's hit, they promoted the article this way. Jewel's advice for dealing with anxiety. One, turn off the news. Two, start guided practices. Three, learn to meditate. Now, why did the New York Times make the focus of their article on a folk musician from the 90s why did they make the focus of that article anxiety? Because the focus of everything right now is anxiety. Even folk musicians who had hits when I was in junior high. So once again today, I'm going to attempt to show you from God's word how important holy patterns like winning the day are. And before we get to our, our key verse of second, or 1 Peter 3.15, I want to give an overview of the chapters that lead up to it. I want you to see the heart of Peter as he's writing this letter to believers like us. In chapter 1, Peter calls believers like us to live differently because we have been purchased not with corruptible things like cash or coins, but we have been purchased by incorruptible things, namely the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says we've been given a truth that never fades. Even though everything in this world fades like grass and the flower, this word remains. And then Peter quotes Isaiah, the passage we looked at. So we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 last week. Then in chapter 2, he says that we should walk away from hatred and malice and that we should instead desire the sincere milk of the word. We're in this new phase as a family where we cannot keep milk in the house. Because we have two growing children and a husband who likes to eat cereal with milk. And so we're constantly out of milk. Peter says to them, instead of focusing on all of this hatred, instead of having this diet of anger and frustration and malice like the world, your diet should be the milk of God's word. You should replace the hatred of this world with the milk and goodness of God's word coming into your life. Then in chapter 2, he shifts the focus into what that effect will have. It'll have the effect of loving others. Verse 17, he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and even honor the king. Chapter 3 goes deeper in what it means to love one another. Chapter 3 in verse 1 says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And then in verse 7, he says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, 
giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is talking specifically about the love between husband and wife, and he recognizes that there cannot be this harmony unless they both love one another. The wife will not be submissive. The husband will not honor if there isn't love. And then moving on from the specific relationship of husband and wife, he says in verse 8, begin reading with me in verse 8, Finally, all of you. And just so we're clear, if none of it else has hit with you, this should hit you because all of you, that's addressed to all of us. Married, unmarried, fathers, sons, moms, daughters, all of us, every one of us. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Verse 8 is great, and then verse 9 gets hard. Not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. It's easy to love people who love you. It's hard to love people who are evil to you. It's easy to show kindness to people who are kind to you. It's hard to show kindness to people who are jerks to you. But he says, instead of giving them back what you're getting, instead of saying, well, they started it, so it justifies my action, love those who hate you. Don't return evil for evil, reviling for revival, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he begins to quote the Psalms, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And then I want you to take this last phrase of verse 14 and kind of combine it with verse 15 because we're going to focus on it. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This whole chapter is about doing good for others, about loving others even when they curse you, even when they're nasty. And I point this out because some of you have the false belief that for you to take time to spend with God, for you to win the day, that it would be selfish or unloving. Some of you are so wrapped up in doing for others that you don't have enough time to spend time with God. You're so wrapped up in taking care of your family or your coworkers or your employees or your classmates or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whoever it is that depends upon you. You're so wrapped up in taking care of them that you cannot spend time with God. I want you to see from this chapter that spending time in God's word is loving those people because it gives you the capacity to love them. 
and serve them. This is in the middle of a chapter about loving spouses, loving one another's brothers, loving outsiders who are nasty to us. And then in verse 18, he talks about how Jesus gave himself for outsiders. We're to follow his example. In other words, winning today is a way that we love other people. When you wake up tomorrow morning, before your children get up, when you wake up tomorrow before your coworkers start calling you and you spend time with God's word, when you turn your phone off, when you close the bedroom door, you are loving your family and loving your coworkers by spending time in God's word. It is not selfish. You're enabling yourself. You are equipping yourself to be able to love them. Winning the day enables us to love others. Have you ever seen a picture of sea otters holding hands? They're very common. I encourage you, if you've never seen one, to Google it right now. Go ahead and pull out your phone. This would be like the one time Pastor Daniel is going to encourage you to Google something during my sermon. Google sea otters holding hands. And it's not like, oh, one time they caught a couple sea otters holding hands and it was just like a fluke thing. No, it happens regularly. Because when sea otters are floating in the ocean or they're floating in water and they doze and they take a nap, they hold hands. They lock hands so that they don't drift away from one another. And so it's pretty common to see a couple or three or five or 12 sea otters all holding hands while they're sleeping, floating on their backs in the sea. They hold hands because they don't want to drift apart. When quarantine happened, I desperately did everything I could to keep people from drifting off. I tried everything I could to lock arms with the congregation so that when we went through this long period of not being able to gather together, we stayed connected. I've never sent more emails and text messages, made more phone calls, done more Facebook Lives, been on more Zoom calls. I've never done more communicating in all of my life than I did during that period trying desperately to remain connected, to hold hands with everyone so that they didn't drift off. But here's the problem. I can't hold hands with everyone because I just got two of them. Peter ran into this exact same problem. Now, Peter was leading the church in the very beginning, and they didn't face a pandemic. Actually, they faced the exact opposite. So many people were coming to become a part of the church that they couldn't keep track of all of them. Thousands of people were joining the church on a regular basis. The scripture said that many were added. Then later the scripture says they were multiplying. They were growing exponentially. And because there were so many people, they couldn't keep track of everyone. And so in Acts chapter 6, there arise this complaint. Just six chapters in, and people are already complaining about the church. And they're complaining to the apostles, the very people who walked with Jesus. And this is their complaint. There are widows who are not being cared for. When you hand out the food, nobody's giving them anything. And we think it's because they're Greek. They accused the disciples of not caring for the widows because they were of a different race. Six chapters into the story of the church, and the leaders of the church are being accused of not caring for the widows, and they're accused of being racists. And if you would think that if there was anything that would cause the disciples to say, well, we got to fix this, and they would jump in with both hands, it would be this. Because here are people who are in need, and there's an accusation of racism. You think they jump in with both hands, but that they don't. Peter and the rest of the leaders, they say this in Acts chapter two and verse, or Acts chapter six and verse two. 
it is not desirable or it is not good that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Peter said, this is important and someone should take care of it, but I can't take my hands off of the Bible. I can't take my hands off of Scripture and prayer to be elbow deep in this problem. I've got to hold on to God's Word. The problem with the sea otters holding hands is that they're all together, but they're still drifting. And if we just set aside the Word of God and we forgot about studying the Bible and forgot about presenting God's truth and we just held hands and we hugged tight, we'd all be connected and singing kumbaya around the campfire, but we'd be drifting off into oblivion. We must hold on to God's Word. I cannot take my hand off of preparing God's Word to share with you. Some of you are so busy in your life. You're so busy caring for the people around you. You're using both hands and one of your feet to try to care for your kids. And you think, I don't have an extra hand to hold on to God's Word. But if you hold tightly to your kids and you don't have a hold of God's word, you're just going to drift off with them into oblivion. Peter knew that the very best thing that he could do, not just for those widows, but for the whole church, was stay connected to the word. So fast forward through Peter's ministry. He's writing a letter and he knows that the way to encourage wives whose husbands aren't believers is to tell them to adorn the inner part of them, to adorn their soul like they would adorn the outer. He says to adorn their souls, in other words, to take on the truth of God's word, be transformed by the love of God, so that your husbands will come to know the truth. And speaking to husbands about honoring their wives, he told them to abide with their wives with what? All understanding. Guys, can I just be honest with you? I don't know that I've ever abided with my wife with all understanding. Most of the time, I don't know what is going on. I appreciate her not saying amen. Abide with their wives with all understanding, connected to the truth. You can be the best husband, you can be the best wife when you're connected to the truth. Winning the day is not selfish. Winning the day enables us to love others. Winning the day enables us to love others, and winning the day enables us to win others. Some of you right now, you were terrified that we were about to lose the soul of this nation in this upcoming election, that the election is going to go the way that you think it shouldn't, and it's going to bring on a cascade of events leading us further down the road away from Christianity. And I commiserate with you, I can totally understand why you feel that way. But this chapter tells us that the very best way for us to win the culture war is to win the day. The very best way for us to win the soul of our nation is to win the day. The chapter tells us that when we sanctify God in our hearts, when we spend time getting close to Him, that there will be people coming and asking us about the hope that's in us. And it's not a, hey, be ready for it in the sense of you need to be ready for a fire because maybe perhaps one day there'll be a fire here. No, it's you need to be ready for it because it is happening. It will come. If you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, people will come asking. And we think that if we just yell louder, if we just talk louder and talk more about the way that our nation should go, that it'll be convincing. Nobody's listening to us. But if we have hope, 
they'll come asking. Mark Sayers says it doesn't matter how big your megaphone is if nobody wants to listen to you. It doesn't matter how loud we get if the people don't come asking. So not only is this the most loving, it's the most effective thing we can do. And beyond that, verse 9 says, know that you were called to this. Even if winning the day wasn't the best way to love our families, even if winning the day wasn't the most effective way, it's what God told us to do. Even if it didn't work, it's what God called us to. He has called us to this. So winning the day enables us to love others. Winning the day enables us to win others. And winning the day is what God calls us to do. So with that in mind, look at 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your heart? To sanctify something or to consecrate something is to set it apart for holy use. So back there on the table, we're not passing the offering plate, but we have it sitting on the table. And it is something we use for, for church. It's not for eating popcorn out of. It's not for throwing Frisbee with. It's got a holy purpose. Consecrating something is setting it aside for its holy purpose, recognizing what it's to be used for. When we sanctify God, we don't make him holy. He already is holy. God is holy whether or not you realize it. God is loving whether or not you realize it. God is powerful and gracious. He is magnificent whether or not we realize it. So when we sanctify God, it isn't that we make him holy. It's that we recognize he's holy. It's that we recognize how good he is. It's that we recognize how magnificent it is. How he is. We recognize how powerful he is. It's like driving towards the mountains. If you've ever dri driven towards the mountains, you know that the mountains start to look like little bumps on the horizon. And as you get closer to them, they seem larger. When you get closer, they're even bigger. And then when you get to the foot of the mountain, you can't even see the whole mountain because it's so big. And as we get closer to God day by day, God gets bigger and bigger in our hearts and minds. And it's not that we make God bigger, but we come to realize just how big he is. We come to recognize with perspective how immense he is. Same thing happens when you go to the beach. Now, when you're going to the beach, you can't see the beach on the horizon. But you can smell the salt in the air. Oh, it's beautiful. And then you can feel the cool breeze off of the water, even though you can't see it yet. And then you make your way past the sand dunes or you make your way past the boardwalk and you can see the beach and you can see the water and you can hear the crash of the waves. And then you go and you put your feet in the water and you can feel it between your toes. And then you swim into the sea and you can feel the power of the waves turning over you. The same thing happens as we get closer to God. It's not that the ocean got bigger the closer we got to it. It's just that we got closer and closer and we recognize more and more how immense it is. It's not that the mountain grew bigger. It's that you recognize how large it is. And here's what happens when we see how big the ocean how big the mountains are. You had that moment where you've stood on the edge of the ocean, where you've stood on some peak, and you've said, I feel so small. This is so big. If you've had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon, you've known that feeling of, man, this is so big, I'm so small. And when we put ourselves against something that's large, we put ourselves in a space that's expansive, 
we see how small we are. And when we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, we have a similar humbling experience. Up next to God's greatness, we recognize how small we are and we recognize how small the troubles of this world are. Do you remember that phrase that is in verse 14? Verse 14 says, Do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give the defense of everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. This verse is about the opposite of fear and trouble and anxiety is sanctifying God in our hearts, seeing how big he is and the result of that being hope. The opposite of anxiety and fear is faith and hope and we get to that faith and hope by seeing how big God is, seeing how magnificent he is. And when we experience that, the world's troubles get small and God gets big. But here's the problem. Right now, if we're honest, for most of us, God seems small and distant, and the world's troubles seem big and overwhelming. And we are filled with fear and anxiety because we see how big the problems of this world are rather than seeing how big the God of this world is. When we get a right-sized view of how good and big and gracious and holy and powerful God is and a right-sided view of how small the troubles of this world are in comparison, we won't be filled with fear and anxiety. We'll be filled with faith and hope. And if we are filled with hope, it will be so powerful. Peter says, and be ready because people are going to come asking, what's the deal with you? Everyone else is freaking out. You're not. What's going on? Peter says, be ready. You see, this hope, it stands out. And never before in my lifetime has the world been so dark as it is right now. Never before in my lifetime has hope had the potential to stand in stark contrast to everything that's going on in the world. But the people of God are filled with fear and anxiety like everyone else. We look just like the world. We're freaking out like the world. We should be filled with hope right now. You should just be ready for people to come and ask you about the hope that's in you. The world is so full of anxiety. Peter says that if we are filled with hope, it'll be like a campfire in the middle of a dark valley that everyone can see for miles around. And not only can they see it, they'll be drawn to its light and its warmth. And this hope, it's not only attractive, it's compelling. Recently, uh, Facebook revealed that posts that are full of vitriol and anger and hatred are far more engaging. And they defended that, that these posts see more views on Facebook because it's just the way that we are. We just, we're more engaged with people being upset. I mean, right now, if somebody started yelling out in the parking lot, you probably would stop listening to me and start going, what's going on out there? But while anger and hatred are more engaging and they're more interesting, they're not more compelling. Kindness and hope are more compelling. And so when Peter says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you, 
He's not saying be ready to knock them over the head with truth. He says be ready to give an answer with meekness and fear. What's meekness? Meekness is humility. Be ready to answer them humbly and with fear. Now, it's interesting that verse 14 tells us not to be afraid, but the end of verse 15 says to answer with meekness and fear. And see, the difference is is that God tells us that we should not be afraid of this world, but we should be filled with awe and wonder at Him. We should be filled with fear, not of what's going on with this world. We should be fear of our holy, powerful, magnificent God. The world has recognized that this is a culture of of panic and anxiety. This is not news to our world. And they believe that they have the answer. They believe that the answer is more acceptance, more inclusivity. And it's true that more acceptance and inclusivity is a welcome relief from the anxiety of this world. But the problem is, it's short-lived because it's just all of us holding hands as we drift off into oblivion. It's all of us hugging as we slide into hell. Peter says, be ready to hug everyone who asks you of the hope that is within you. Is that what he says? No. Be ready to give defense or an answer when people ask you the reason of the hope that is within you. When people see the hope, we should welcome them. But we must tell them the truth. We must tell you the truth. You know why I'm begging you to win the day? Because through the pandemic, I've seen just how strong the Lord is and how weak we are. Through the pandemic, I've recognized just how fleeting our efforts are and how long-lasting God's truth is. Through the pandemic, I've realized that at my best, I can just slow down the drift. That's all I can do. John Eric Mosler, I recently heard him tell the story of his his daughter. His wife had a baby girl, and they thought, she's just the perfect baby. She never cries, sleeps all the time. We won the lottery. We got the perfect baby. A couple days after she was born, doctors figured out the reason that she never cried and the reason that she slept all the time is because she had a congenital heart defect. And she didn't cry because she hardly had the oxygen to live. It was all her lungs could do to fill with enough oxygen to put in her bloodstream that her weakened heart could pump through her body. The doctors came to her and said, we've got to do heart surgery on your newborn. John Eric Moser said that the, the night before, he, he stayed up all night holding his daughter. He, he thought this might be the last night he had with her. He said as he held her all night, he was holding her with one arm under her back and then he had his other arm on her feet. Because with her weakened heart, her heart could not pump enough blood to keep her feet warm. And so her feet were constantly blue. And so he was holding them with his hand and he was blowing warm breath on her feet, trying to keep her feet warm. 
And all night he held on to her, not knowing if this was it, trying to keep her feet warm. The next morning the doctor came to take their child to surgery. And he said, because she was so small, they didn't put her in a bed. The doctor just came to me with his hands out. And he was asking me to hand my child over to him. He said, I can't tell you how hard it is to hand your newborn over to this man. And you don't know if she's going to come back alive. He said, but I knew that I had to give her to someone who could fix her heart. It was all I could do to keep her feet warm. I needed a surgeon to fix her heart. Surgeon takes her. They stop this, this child's heart. They put her on a machine that is beating her, doing the heartbeat for her while they do this procedure on her heart. The surgery goes well. There's no complications. They're told that they can come in and see their child. And when they come in to see their, their newborn, she has 17 tubes and wires running into her body. She's sprawled out on this bed with all of these wires hooked up to her. And he took a picture of that moment, of her laying there like that. And he said that whenever he shows people this picture, they say, oh, she looks so pathetic. She looks so sickly. She looks so weak. He said, but I look at that picture and I see her feet. Because her feet aren't blue. Her feet are pink. Because her heart is fixed and her feet are no longer broken. Right now, right now, the church in America, the church here, our local church, looks a lot like that baby. Tubes running out of it, looking pathetic and weak and on a hospital bed. But if our hearts have been fixed, if we have this desire for God's truth and God's word, you know, I did through the pandemic. I was just trying to keep people's feet warm. But if our heart is changed, I won't have to convince you to come to church. I won't have to convince you to spend time in God's Word. I won't have to convince you to be in a group. I won't have to convince you to go after God. It'll be natural because your heart has been fixed. And we might be in a weakened state right now. But if we are seeking God's truth, I think that means that our heart is fixed and our feet are finally pink. pandemic has brought us to the end of ourselves and it's brought us to the end of me. It's brought me to the place where I say, okay, I, can't, I can't keep everybody's feet warm. You're, you're going to have to fix their hearts. It's beyond me. And I've just had to hand you, this church, over to him. 